today I'm talking about a really important issue when it comes to careers in wildlife biology, and it's one that we don't talk about a lot, and it is finances. When I decided I wanted a career in wildlife biology, when I started to make the shift, I actually happened to be a theater major at the time, and I wanted to become an actress prior to becoming a wildlife biologist. And with acting, it's well known how difficult the field is, that if you are trying to make it, make your full income from acting, that you will likely have to do things like wait tables or have other side jobs for a while until you're able to get yourself on your feet. So when I found out that I loved wildlife biology, that it was a career option, I was so happy because... I am not a financially risky person. I grew up with my dad who was always like really serious about finances and taught me all about them. So I really wanted to become an actress, but I did not like that side about it. However, once I became a wildlife biologist, it really amazed me the similarities between careers in wildlife biology and those in theater. And not only from my own experience, but also I've been doing some research figuring out what issues you guys are struggling with most. And this was a huge one, finances. So our jobs, I I knew I was never going to make a ton of money in this field, but I thought at least I would make enough to, to live a life. But the reality of the situation is a lot of these jobs they, they don't pay well and just not enough that you can even have some of the, the key things that you want in life. And after you graduate, it is especially hard to get a permanent job. So a lot of people have seasonal positions and these seasonal positions are paid usually by stipends and this can be even below minimum wage. So making sure that you not only have all your positions lined up, well, that's ideal that they're continuous so you can make money throughout. And then also a lot of times these positions it's really difficult to get in the same place so you have to move around a lot and moving costs a lot so a lot of people in this field they do do side jobs they they do things like pet sitting I've talked to people who do um, DoorDash and things like that so I really wanted to do an episode on finances, and I decided to invite an expert in. So I invited Dr. Emily Roberts of Personal Finance for PhD. PhDs. She is somebody who graduated with her PhD, and she loved the financial side of things so much that she specialized in um, helping graduate students do it. So uh, we actually interviewed each other, so we're both featured on each other's podcasts, and this is my version. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation about what it's like, what you should think about financially in this career in wildlife biology. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. I am Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, and I am a wildlife biologist, and now I've turned a science communication entrepreneur. A brief background of myself is that I kind of stumbled into this career. I didn't know I wanted to be a wildlife biologist until my last year in college when I decided to study abroad and I randomly chose a wildlife management program in Kenya. So that changed my life. And I knew from there that I had to go to graduate school. So I got some experience doing three different types of internships over the course of three years. And then I went to graduate school to get my PhD at the University of Missouri, where I spent close to seven years there. 
followed by one short postdoc and one long postdoc lasting probably about honestly seven years. Yeah. So my, my short postdoc was at Missouri and my long postdoc was at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, where I got to work on a lot of camera trap stuff that, that I talk about today. Yeah. And now on the last part is I started my own business last year. I've been, I've been blogging for the past few years and I officially made it a business last year where I spread knowledge about science communication. I educate people. I started kids programs. And then of course I help people in their wildlife biology careers. Fantastic. What is the name of your business? A fancy scientist. Yeah. Great. Well, I am Dr. Emily Roberts. My business is Personal Finance for PhDs. My website is pfforphds.com, and I'll give you a bio like Stephanie did. My undergrad degree was in physics from Harvey Mudd College. I graduated in 2007, and I knew I wanted to do a bit of a career field change. I wanted to go to graduate school in biomedical engineering. So I did a one-year post-bac fellowship at the NIH, and then I spent six years in graduate school at Duke earning my PhD in biomedical engineering. So finished up my PhD in 2014. But basically during the course of that seven-year kind of PhD training period, I absolutely fell in love with the subject of personal finance. And it was definitely motivated by living on a stipend. Like, how do I do this? I'm an oldest child, so I'm like very like responsible and I like want to do the right thing. And so I didn't really know how to do that with money when I graduated from college. So I sort of embarked on learning about personal finance and it eventually became my passion and then finally my career. So fell in love with the subject and I was really realizing when I was in graduate school that there wasn't anyone teaching personal finance or interpreting personal finance material for graduate students and postdocs and PhDs. And so I decided to step into that vacuum that I perceived and become that person. So I started personal finance for PhDs right around the time that I defended and have been doing it for the last seven years. I do a lot of public speaking. So I give webinars and seminars for universities. I also run a membership community called Personal Finance for PhDs Community and sell like workshops and courses and stuff through my website. One of my most popular workshops is actually on taxes. <laughs> so if you are a graduate student and you are struggling with your taxes, definitely come to my uh, website to find out more about that. Yeah, but I'm really excited to speak with you, Stephanie, today because we our subject is kind of, you know, the finances of pursuing a career in wildlife biology, but it's a little bit more general than that, really, because we're really talking about how to stay sort of financially balanced and healthy while you're pursuing a passion that is not necessarily or immediately lucrative. And in fact, might, you know, you might be paying for in the form of your education, you might be paying for career experiences. So that's kind of our general topic. So even if those of you, you know, who are coming to the podcast are not in wildlife biology, like still stick around because this is going to be generalizable information. Yeah, absolutely. I would even add that our field can be more lucrative in terms of going to graduate school than, than other fields. Like I've heard about people who are getting their PhDs in English and their TA ships get paid just so poorly. So a lot of the experience and advice here will definitely transfer over. Yeah. Let's talk more about specifically how wildlife biology is positioned because it's a science field, of course, which you might immediately think, oh, like you make money in science, of course. But on the other side of it, it's a very competitive field and people follow it because of long held passions. So let's talk more about that. Like how do people develop their passion for wildlife biology and pursue that? I think people develop it usually from a young age. That That's what happened for me. I always loved animals and I love nature. And like I said, I didn't discover it until a career as later on. Like when, pe when you're young, people always say like, why don't you become a vet if you really like animals? So I didn't know it was a career option, but some people, some people do. But when you track back to like why people want to do it, it usually has to do with those experiences of being outside in nature when you're young. And actually a lot of wildlife biologists a lot of them start off like hunting and they just spend a lot of time outdoors. So I think that a big reason why people are so attracted to the field is that they, they think they will be spending a lot of time outside. And this is definitely true for some careers. It, it depends on what level of education you have and of course what job you have but in general the more education you have the the less time you spend outside it's like an it's an inverse relationship 
And, you know, we get really cool experiences. A lot of us get to travel. Of course, some of us get these really close interactions with animals that regular people can't have, or even just accessing different types of places, like some of the field sites I've been to would have been difficult to visit as a tourist and some of the experiences you have. So yeah, I think that's what's really attractive about it. And you're right, it's really interesting because there's so much push for for STEM education and especially getting people of color and girls interested in STEM because our field is not very diversified. And a reason to advocate for STEM careers is often actually like finances, that that it's a really financially beneficial career. But again, it totally depends on what you do. And wildlife biology is is not very lucrative. And it's it's just simply because there's there's not a lot of of money in wildlife and, and conservation work. A lot of our employment is nonprofits the universities and I mean, universities, you can definitely get paid well. And, and, and any of these jobs you can get, you can get paid well, but in general, if you think of like, like disease research, there's going to be so much more money from the U S government to, and other sources to invest in like medical research uh, than there is in saving wildlife. So, so that's really the big, the big difference, but I think most people go into it because they love it so much. And I, that's what I always said. I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of money, but I loved it so much. So that's why I went into it. And it's so important to go into these kinds of career choices with your eyes wide open as to what the possibilities are, including the financial um, possibilities. So it sounds like people, maybe from the time they're children, have a very like romantic idea of what this career is going to be. But the reality does not necessarily line up with that, especially as you advance further and further. So would you tell us please about like, sort of what the career and job opportunities are for someone interested in wildlife biology after a bachelor's, after a master's, after a doctorate, and like what kind of pay comes along with those different levels of education? Yeah, sure. It's interesting though that you said that about like the romantic version because I have a book getting getting a job in wildlife biology and what what it's like and what you want to know. And I had a review on there recently. It wasn't a bad review, it was a four-star review, so it was good, but it was a parent that bought it for her daughter and she read it first and with the intention of getting it to her daughter. And after she read it, she was kind of like, I'll leave it up to my daughter to, to read. And her review was all about how realistic I was. And, and that's exactly why I wrote it because people have this really romantic view of what wildlife biology is like, like myself growing up, I saw Jane Goodall and I mean, Jane Goodall isn't really considered a wildlife biologist. She's more of a primatologist, but, but still that's what you imagine it to look like or Steve Irwin. And the reality is you're not doing those types of things. So I, I pride myself on, on telling the truth and I don't want to dissuade anyone from entering this field. I just want them to know like what it's like going into it. But there's, I mean, there's a huge variety of possibilities. I personally think it's really difficult to get a job at the bachelor's level. And if you do get a job at the bachelor's with a bachelor's degree only, you will have to take temporary jobs. You'll have to take, and those will likely be seasonal jobs because there's a lot of work in the summertime and the springtime when animals are active, like of course, depending on where you live versus wintertime. And those jobs are likely not going to be in the same place. So you're going to most likely have to move around. And so, which again is financially difficult because these jobs don't pay that much and moving costs a lot. Some of these jobs, they just give you a stipend. So it ends up being like below the minimum wage when you work out your hours, but you absolutely can get a, a permanent job with a bachelor's degree. And there's a wildlife biologist, Christina Lynn. She has a YouTube channel. So she has a bachelor's degree and she has a permanent job. Job. And at this level, honestly, I'd say, I'd say you get paid like 30 to $40,000 a year. And then with your master's degree, there are a lot more jobs open up for you. So if you want to do this as a career, I would suggest getting at least a master's and those jobs again, not too much more. I'd say like the $40,000 maybe $50,000 range too, actually. So I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that's mostly what I'm basing my, my costs of. So I, I would say Raleigh is pretty, 
average for the United States. It's not super expensive to live, but it's not a super cheap city. And then, but yeah, master's, I was at 40 to 50 and then PhD really, I mean, they really should start at like 60 and above, but my colleagues have definitely taken level jobs in their, in their low to mid fifties at the PhD level, just because of opportunities out there. And yeah, it totally depends on who is hiring, but even like our state government here can't afford to, to pay a lot for those jobs. And then something else that people have to consider that I know is a problem in our field. I talked to a couple of people recently about this is like where you can max out at your job. So if you're in a typical, like, I don't know, office job, I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> if you're a typical office job, you can, you have stepping stones and you can work yourself up through the company here or in our field. It can be very difficult. You can reach like the top of your position. And then unless like the director steps down or somebody very prominent changes their career, then you really don't have anywhere to go. And with PhD level jobs, I mean, I know people who have six figure salaries, so that's, that's definitely possible, but I'd say like, like at least 60, 65 starting out is, is pretty typical even, even now. And then the different types of careers. So really when we say wildlife biologist, we mean a science career. So, so somebody who is studying wildlife in, in their habitat, where they live, studying them usually for management purposes. So this could be in the government, it could be for a nonprofit, it could be at a university, it could be government, estate and federal government, it can be a consulting agency as well. And then there's these like different aspects of wildlife biology, which are not quite the science, but they revolve around the science. So things like educational careers where you might be working like at a national park and doing interpretation or naturalist types of careers. They're more education-based. There's also communications careers, especially with the rise of social media and more creative careers like filmmakers or photographers and then law careers as well. So either like going into environmental law or there's a lot of careers in policy. And then at the, the very like state local level, there's ranger positions, which are, which are really law enforcement. So it's a huge, huge spectrum. Regarding once you get to the PhD level, what's the availability of jobs? Because you were saying at the bachelor's level, it's pretty uncommon to get a permanent like full-time position at that level. Masters, there's a little bit more opportunity. How about at the PhD level? And I, I think along with that question, I would ask, what percentage of people who get a PhD in wildlife biology are actually ending up in that field, like one of the jobs of the type that you just mentioned, versus getting an, another type of job entirely? That's a really good question. And I don't think I know the answer to that. And I think there's a lot of different variables that happen specifically with women. They have families and I mean, things like that can happen, but I honestly don't know the answer on top of my head, but I think it's difficult. It's difficult at all stages. And that's the reason why I wrote my book is because, and, and started blogging about this stuff is because when I was in graduate school, I did know that professor jobs were really competitive. Academic jobs were competitive, but I always said, I, I really wanted like anything else but academics. I just was never attracted to the university setting for some reason. So I mostly wanted either like a research or education-based job and nobody really ever told me that, that they were competitive. It was just sort of like, okay, you get your PhD. And I remember being in workshops where people would tell me that because you have a PhD, it shows that you problem solved and it can apply to a lot of different types of careers, even, even those more tangential to wildlife biology or science. And that was not my experience at all. The, once I started applying for jobs, I really was done moving around because I, I moved around a bit before graduate school and then, and then in graduate school. So I wanted a permanent job and um, not a postdoc, which is a postdoc as a temporary job after you graduate. And I didn't get anything for permanent jobs. I only got, actually, no, I did get one. I won interview for a permanent job, but the others were postdocs. And it really was for positions that I had direct experience working in. So in other words, what I did in my PhD, my research experience in my PhD really predicted the course I was going to take. 
And for those of you not in graduate school, graduate school, at least for the sciences, isn't about as much taking courses. It's really about your research. What research you choose will help you land your next job, essentially. So if you, so for example, when I first started, I didn't know exactly what kind of job I wanted, but I, I knew I was going to end up in the United States. And for my PhD, I studied forest elephants. Now there's no elephants that live in the United States that are wild. So there's just fewer jobs and really only jobs are professors or zoo jobs. And, and they're just really rare. So I really should have gotten my degree studying something like black bears, which live like all over the U S or there's, you know, there's multiple bear species here, but yeah, I, I get the impression it's competitive at all different levels. And when I was looking for jobs, my friends were having like the same difficulties. So I knew it wasn't just me and like, I wasn't writing my applications good or anything. It was kind of like a silent epidemic where we would all like talk to each other and be like, wow, I can't believe this is so difficult. And then, and then also talking to other people who have been employed in their jobs for a while, like this one professor at NC State. He's not even, I don't think he's even been there like a really long time, but when he got his job, he only had one publication. Whereas I did apply for some, for some professor jobs and myself and another applicant, we probably had between 10 to 15 publications and like, we weren't even considered for an interview. So the standards have definitely changed. And, and yes, I think it's, it's competitive at all levels. And just, just one more thing. And my, my other friend, I had her on my podcast, but I, I did say that like more opportunities open up to you with, when you have a master's, she had her master's degree and she still had to do temporary jobs after her master's before she landed a permanent position. I do love your realism right here. And I'm sure in your book as well, because people who are pursuing higher education for, and also, you know, careers that are competitive and so forth they need kind of a dose of cold water and they need to get the advice that you're saying right here about like really consider the exact research project that you are committing to because that is going to shape the future of your career. And it sounds like for you, you have this sort of geographic element like thrown in that maybe some other fields like don't, but still it's very, very important to choose choose wisely what field you're in, the kind of research you do, who you work with, whether you have other outside experiences, you know, outside of just your typical graduate work and so forth. So yeah, a lot of people <laughs> need to hear what you're saying and more people probably need to do this for other fields, not just yours. So one thing that I learned from our prior conversations is that in your field, it's very common for people to have to do volunteer experiences or even pay to play experiences to get into graduate school, to get a job, to advance. And this is not necessarily as common in other areas. So could you please tell us more about what, you know, what does pay to play mean? What are the kinds of volunteer experiences that people may be required to have? And, and, and are they really required? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really hot topic right now. I personally think that you cannot get into graduate school without having some sort of experience. And in order to get that first paid experience, honestly, you really need experience for that. And you can, I would say you can get it in college if you volunteer with a lab and you get college credit for it. So that's essentially not totally volunteering. And there are some work study programs in colleges as well, but really to get your first experience, you need to volunteer. And that's just the unfortunate reality of it. And, uh, and this is a big problem because it discourages diversity from our field. So I'm not, I'm in no way like advocating for these experiences. I just feel like that's the reality of the situation. So there's lots of experiences. And even at our, our museum, like when I, when we had interns in our lab, we did have money for some of them. And I constantly applied for grants to get money to pay interns, but they don't come through. So, so either like I would have people email me and be like, I'm so interested in your research. Can I help you out? Or I would have a lot of research to do and I would come across people and offer them experiences to help me with this. And there's, there's exchanges in other ways. Like I write them letters of recommendations and I invite them to be on journal publications and stuff like that. But yeah, we can't afford to, to pay for everyone. So it's hard, it's hard to deny people experiences who, who want them. 
But also the pay to play thing is that some experiences are so desirable that they can afford to charge for them. And I do think there are some sort of scammy experiences out there where they profit off of it. But there are also legit scientists who are working in another country and they have to pay for the field site and the food costs and things like that. So I've seen job advertisements where you get to maybe go to like South Africa for a summer and you have to pay to stay there. And they mentioned that it just covers the field costs and they're not making money off of it. But still, I know... A big reason why I got certain opportunities was because of my experience in Kenya. I had a study abroad program and an internship in Kenya. And Kenya was, it really was volunteering because I did get paid, but I got paid a Kenyan salary. And then I did have to pay for half of my airfare. So it ended up being a year where I didn't make anything. And yeah, if I didn't have those experiences, then I would have not had like my graduate school experience of studying forest elephants. So if somebody who comes from uh, a financially disadvantaged background really wants to do something like work internationally, honestly, it's really tough because those experiences are more desirable and, and people are willing to, to pay for them. Yeah. You outlined a couple of reasons why, why these experiences exist. It really it really sounds like the field is is in a bind. There's not enough funding coming in for all the work that needs to be done sort of from above, but from below, from the the people coming up the ranks, there's an eagerness for people to to do the work even if it's on a volunteer basis, even if they have to pay out of pocket for it. But it sounds like this just comes back to a a funding squeeze, right? And the field being so popular and competitive. Those things combined uh, have set up the the conditions for this system to develop and I I agree with you. It sounds it sounds nightmarish actually for someone who doesn't come from a financially um, advantaged background. And it's it's a little bit like, you know, in recent, I don't know, last decade or two there's been so many more conversations about unpaid internships and the elimination of unpaid internships in most fields because they're <laughs> they're not great for anybody, especially people who, you know, can't afford to do them. But it sounds like that hasn't quite touched the field of wildlife biology yet because these are essentially unpaid internships like on steroids because you actually have to in some cases pay to, you know, access the site or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that, like I said, that's a huge conversation right now. And I think it's especially difficult for nonprofit organizations because, you know, they obviously always need more funding and they have been under attack, like posting unpaid internships. And I understand both sides. Like I understand that people need to get paid for their time, but I also don't think it solves the diversity problem because if you're just taking experiences away in general, then anything that is available is going to be so, so, so competitive. So it's like a, it's like a lose, lose situation. Yeah, it definitely sounds like that. Okay. So we've kind of talked about the downsides to the the field of kind of relying on these volunteer and pay to play experiences in the pipeline at the beginning of the pipeline to get that, to get into graduate school, you need to have some kind of experience to get that first experience that maybe you get paid. Well, you have to have an unpaid experience before, before that point. There are downsides to the field of like losing out on having great, you know, scientists, budding scientists who could be part of the field, maybe being turned away for financial reasons. What are the financial risks that are posed to an individual who tries to pursue a career in wildlife biology? I think, I mean, just going into debt or living paycheck to paycheck constantly, that's like super common in our field. But I know many people who have gone into debt for these like pay to play experiences or to do a volunteer experience, but they don't have the means to cover themselves financially while they're doing that experience and it affects your, your entire life. The opportunities, I guess, they they kind of go away, but they manifest in different ways. So like once you get your PhD, well, actually after your master's too, like I talked about my friend, Rebecca, a lot of times you have these temporary opportunities and it's really difficult to get things lined up financially. And this is a, it's a very demanding career. There's always things that you could be doing for your career, especially once you get to like the science route of, of doing more research based things then you 
are going to want to be working on your publications and things like that to get you that next job. So you don't necessarily have the time to be able to like take on another job. So, I mean, it's really just that you have the potential to go into debt. People do go into debt and then they don't have the the finances saved to be able to keep going in the future if opportunities don't line up. Yeah, this does remind me of the general like pursuit of the tenure track in some fields where you need a PhD to get and your goal is to get a faculty position. But the employment opportunities, if you don't end up, you know, landing that faculty position are non-existent, very rare, not very lucrative. And so it's like, yeah, if the stars completely align and you get that job that you're going for, it all works out. But for most people who pursue that, it's not going to work out. And so you have to realize that going in, it doesn't mean you can't like, you know, shoot for the stars and everything, but you need to have some kind of nets and backup plans and safety because the stats are that a tenure track position is not going to work out for the vast majority of people who pursue one. And so it seems like there's, you know, an analogy here with the field, with the career in wildlife biology. Do you see any additional downsides or risks? I mean, mentioning going to debt like you did is absolutely perfect. But to me, there's another layer on top of that, which is the loss of opportunity to get compound interest working for you. So if you go for many years in your 20s and into your 30s, maybe doing temporary work and underpaid work, and maybe you're accumulating some debt, or even if you're not, but you're not doing anything like on the saving and investing front to get ahead with your finances, then that's lost time. Um, That decade or so is lost time. And it's possible to make up for lost time, but you just have to save so much more later. But what if you end up maybe in your 30s in a job that pays, as you mentioned before, $50,000 a year when you were hoping for something that paid more, was more stable or something like that? Like That's where you are and that's what you have to live off of and save off of after that point and still try to make up for that lost time. So I think that people can be financially successful at all different kinds of salary levels. But like we were talking about earlier, you just have to be realistic about what the opportunities are, the salary opportunities are in the field that you're pursuing and also in your backup plans if that primary plan um, doesn't work out that well. So yeah, the loss of time to get compound interest working for you is uh, the main one that I see there. And I think that people in our field don't think about that stuff at all. And even, or I know they don't think about that stuff at all. And even like talking about the loss of time with your, your first starting salary, you really don't have at least a good first starting salary. I had a starting salary in graduate school, but, um, like how most jobs work is you get your, your, your first job and that's your starting salary. And then that's like the bar for you to negotiate a higher salary, every job that you get. So for myself, when I graduated from my PhD, I was what thirties, close to 30. And, you know, my husband, who's an electrical engineer, he had been in his career for, for several years already. So not only are we getting paid little when we're starting out, but we're starting out later in age. And another thing is people don't in do retirement investments either. So my, my dad grew up poor. His, his dad died when he was younger and he had his brothers to take care of. So he was always like financially worried and he always had us read financial books and stuff like that. So I've had a retirement account since legally you can have one, I think maybe 16 or 18, but yeah, like we're not taught that like, you're right. Like nobody's talking about this stuff and they, like my friends would be like, well, I'll get, I'll get it when through my job when I get my first job, but some of my friends didn't get their first jobs until they were close to their forties and your retirement compounds. And that's really where the money comes from. So if you are waiting a while to, to start that, then you're missing out on a lot of, a lot of that income compounding. Yeah. And I think again, to generalize, like this is something that I see with graduate students all the time, postdocs all the time is that there's an optimism about what the future salaries are going to be post-PhD, post-postdoc. And I certainly have the same optimism for them. But the other thing that happens as you age, generally speaking, is that your life gets more expensive in a variety of ways. You know, maybe you buy a house, maybe you have a child, maybe you have to take care of aging parents or other family members. Like, so even if you do 
see a post-PhD jump in salary in whatever field that you're in, it might not go as far as you were hoping that it would. And so to me, my attitude is more like, you know, work with what you have now. That is, try as best you can to live a sort of financially balanced lifestyle and do some of that retirement investing or paying off debt or whatever it is that your goal is while you still have a lower salary, while you're still in graduate school. And yes, like I do hope that that higher salary comes, the permanent job comes, and it'll all be much easier later. But just in case it's not, let's get started now so that you have that time as we were talking about for you know your your money to compound or at least your debt to not compound as much. Absolutely. Emily here for a brief interlude. The federal annual tax filing deadline was extended to May 17th, 2021, but the federal estimated tax due date remains April 15th, 2021. This is the perfect time of year to evaluate the income tax due on your fellowship or training grant stipend. Filling out the estimated tax worksheet in Form 1040-ES will tell you how much you can expect your tax liability to be this year and whether you are required to pay estimated tax. Whether you're required to pay throughout the year or not, I suggest that you start saving for your ultimate tax bill from each paycheck in a dedicated savings account. If you need some help with the estimated tax worksheet or want to ask me a question, please join my workshop, Quarterly Estimated Tax for Fellowship Recipients. It explains every line of the worksheet and answers common questions that postbacs, grad students, and postdocs have about estimated tax, such as what to do when you switch on or off a fellowship in the middle of a calendar year. Go to pfforphds.com slash QETax to learn more about and join the workshop. Now back to our interview. Okay, so knowing that this is a financially risky career, what do you think, like what's your advice to people who want to pursue it in like they're absolutely sure they want to do this and maybe they don't have a financial safety net or they don't come from a really really wealthy background, what can they do? I think the first thing to acknowledge is that you as an individual are a a whole person and that you have needs and desires that are perhaps independent of this career in wildlife biology that you want to pursue or any kind of competitive and perhaps not lucrative kind of career. And what I mean by that is that I I would love for you to pursue like your career kind of passion, but just as you're doing that, keep in mind that you still have needs as a person. You have financial needs, you have relational needs, you have uh, spiritual needs, health needs, all these things matter as well. And I think there's a tendency for people, especially when they're younger and their 20s and so forth, to drive hard at their career goals at the expense of some of these other areas of life. And it will catch up to you (laughs) eventually. You will reach age 30 or age 40 and realize that you have some deficits or dearths in these other areas because you were trying to sort of suppress your needs and desires in those areas for so long to pursue this career. So I don't think that's healthy and don't do it. (laughs) So try your best, right? And so we're going to talk about the finances, but there's all these other areas of life as well. So don't forget that you're a whole human and you're more than just your future career job in wildlife biology. So that's kind of the the first thing to keep in mind. So as we're talking about sort of financial health and financial wholeness as you pursue these careers, I do think you need to create your own safety net and your own financial security and backup plans as you go. And so that may mean that it will take you a little bit longer to get to you, to get to graduate school, for example, if that's like your next goal. Maybe you might take an extra year instead of you know taking a one or two year gap, take a three or four year gap between finishing undergrad and that graduate degree, for example. And that's to build up more of your own financial security in the meantime. And so one of the things we talked about earlier, these pay to play or volunteer experiences, is it possible, for example, for you to plan around that and say, I'm going to have a summer job? Maybe it's not even a job. I'm going to have a summer experience and it's going to cost this much money or I'm going to be paid this much, but my lifestyle needs are this much. And how can you save in advance for that? And what kind of job can you have when you're not actively engaged with these experiences? How can you pursue a job and a career that will allow you to have the experiences but still give you some financial stability in the meantime? And One of the things I end up talking a lot about and that I've learned a lot about from people I've interviewed on my podcast um, is regarding money mindset and limiting beliefs. And so a limiting belief that someone in the field of wildlife biology might hear, and they might even get this from your work, again, the realism, is I can only ever have a temporary job and I can't have a job the other seven or eight months of the year because 
that's not in my field, whatever. But maybe there is a way for you to build a job or an income or a career in that part of the year and still have that balance where you want to do, you know, these special experiences in the summer or the spring or what have you, but still be making money in the other part of the year. And honestly, I think one of the most accessible ways is what you and I are now pursuing, which is entrepreneurship. So maybe there's a way to have, you know, set up your own stream of income. Maybe you work on it more intensely in one part of the year and less intensely in the other part of the year. And you can create that balance for yourself to still allow you to pursue the experiences in the career that you want to have, but still be making money in the other part of the year or a little bit, you know, while you're having those experiences still. So that's um, one idea. The other one is about this, this debt, you know. Um, either going into debt to have, have experiences or on the flip side, maybe not paying down student loan debt that you've accumulated in the past. I mean, as we've had a student loan debt crisis that's been building and building ahead of steam for a long time, but especially in the last decade. And, you know, in the last decade, I think many people have come to realize, you know, your student loans, your education, especially at the bachelor's level, is not necessarily an investment. It's not automatically an investment. You can't pursue any bachelor's at any price and make sh- and you know be sure that that's going to pay off. Same thing for graduate degrees. You know, your home is not always an investment. <laughs> there are things that used to feel safe that used to give you a path to the middle class that are not there. They're not guaranteed any longer. And so I think you have to be really like in thinking about pay-to-play experiences as an extension of student loan debt. So like I'm taking out student loan debt to pursue my education. I'm taking out some kind of personal loan or consumer debt to pursue this experience that I want to have to get into graduate school, you can think about them sort of analogously. And so one rule of thumb that works for student loan debt that maybe you could extend to if you're going into debt for these experiences in wildlife biology is don't take out more debt than one year, your first year starting salary. That's like the rule of thumb for an undergraduate degree. And so if you're, you know, going into a little bit of debt or pers- or foregoing salary to um, pursue these, you know, volunteer pay-to-play experiences, can you keep the debt level down to one year of your current salary or lower? Is that possible? So, like, so yes, pursue these experiences, but make sure you're doing it in a you're not giving yourself carte blanche, right, to spend and go into as much debt as uh, you might want to. You're sort of putting some checks and balances on yourself along the way to make sure that you're not getting in too far over your head. Yeah, absolutely. And actually my one of my big I have a lot of advice for people, but it's something I think that that people should do is not worry about the school so much. Like a lot of students are are super obsessed with like what's the best graduate program or what's the best college to go to. And I honestly think that that students should really especially at the college level focus on getting the school it's going to cost them the least because like you mentioned your degree doesn't necessarily pay off if you're going to pay, if you're going to invest, you know, $120,000 for a college degree and you can get the same result with one that's going to cost you 10,000. I mean, I, I actually regretted for a long time, my experience, because I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I, I even applied poorly to schools. I didn't get, I applied to like only Ivy league schools. Cause that's what I knew. And the only schools I got into were my local state school and other schools that cost like $30,000 a year or a semester. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to start off at my state school because I don't know what I'm doing. And then it also felt weird to dorm at my state school, which was like 20 minutes down the road from me. So I stayed with my parents and I, I regret not having the college experience, but I also love that I don't have debt and that it was, I mean, I paid, I think a thousand dollars a semester for, for school. So in the long run, it definitely was, was worth it. And in this field, so much is about those experiences. So if you really want those pay to play experiences, because I mean, some of them are super cool. You could focus more on getting into school that's more affordable and do some of those things rather than go to a really expensive school. And this, this is true for graduate school too. And graduate school in science, you do get paid, you get a stipend, but you get paid different amounts according to the different schools and even according to the different programs. So I was actually in a, I was actually not in the, the wildlife biology program at 
for my PhD or in, in the department I was in the biological sciences department and they had a fellowship. So I was paid a lot more and I didn't have to TA and that, that played a huge role in me deciding to do that as opposed to another program where I would have to TA and get, and get paid less. I think that's a great point, both at the graduate and the undergraduate level is it's more about what is the actual work that you could be doing, who can you be working with rather than maybe the name of the school. And of course, the finances come into play as well. Because again, I I think my basic point here is like shore up security for yourself as you go as best you can to keep you on this route as long as you want to be on it in pursuit of a career in wildlife biology so that if you get to the end, let's say, of your PhD and you realize, okay, I, I can get the permanent job. I've achieved all my goals. Everything is wonderful. Well, you have some good you know, financial a nest egg behind you perhaps, or at least not as much debt as you could have been in. That would be great. But if you get to that point and you say, nope, I'm going to exit this career now. I'm not going to have the type of job that I thought I would have. I'm going to have some other type of job. At least you won't have the financial regret behind you of, oh my gosh, I pursued this school, that school. They didn't pay me well enough. I you know, spent too much on this experience. Yeah, I think what you said is perfect is like focus more on the experiences if you want to go for, you know, less expensive college education, but save your dollars for some pay to play experiences that are really high impact, then that makes a lot of strategic sense to me. Yeah. And another route, I think we talked about this in our chat, you talked about an acronym FIRE. Yeah. So FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early or Early Retirement. Yeah. So you could either do that or do a sort of hybrid model. And I interviewed somebody who did something kind of similar to that inadvertently. He didn't, I mean, he didn't retire early, but he had 20 years in a corporation that was a really good job. And he participated, he volunteered in these citizen science programs on the weekends and in his spare time. And his corporation actually paid for him to go back to school. So he did get a degree in environmental sciences. But when he was finished and on the job market, he got the second job he applied for. And I could not believe that. I was like, oh my gosh, wow. And it was because of those volunteer experiences. He had so much experience that he was like leading groups and organizing events and stuff like that. So that all translated really well. So you could start off in a more lucrative career and, and volunteer with conservation organizations, with citizen science. And, and make enough money then where you can, where you can take a less lucrative career. Or if you're a real go-getter in, in today's world, like, I mean, there's, there's really not a financial limit to like what you can do online and with entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Like it's, it is tough to do, but it's, I mean, there's so many like millionaires who, who are, are six figure earners from selling courses online and in, practical stuff too. Like I remember I was listening to this one podcast, this woman, she had a podcast all about goats and she made six figures just from selling a course on how to raise backyard goats. And she had like, she had like different courses too. (laughs) So it's like, you know, you just don't think like, oh, wow. Like you can make a lot of money off of information on goats, but you can. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. Yeah, what I think is really interesting about the FIRE movement and combined with like these sort of passion careers, whether it's wildlife biology or whether it's maybe some other thing you want to get a PhD in. So if, you know, the the most intense people in the FIRE movement, the goal is to retire in about 10 years, not retire necessarily, but become financially independent in about 10 years. That would be like a fast goal. So you get out of college when you're 20, to, you know, by 32, if you were really intense about it and chose the right career, maybe you were an engineer or something like that, you could be retired by that point or, you know, financially independent, optional to retire at that point. Now, that is a route to free up the entire rest of your life from age 32 to whatever to do anything that you want, as long as your lifestyle expenses don't uh, creep up to the point they exceed your investment's ability to support you. And so that is where you could spend the next 50, 70, 100 years of your career working in wildlife biology in any kind of capacity that you can achieve, knowing that your finances are already taken care of. And that's a very unconventional route, right? But I think it's something that 
maybe more people should consider if their passion is in a field where it's so difficult and so competitive to get a full-time position. And, you know, I think it also goes back to the realism discussion we are having earlier. You know, maybe there's something about wildlife biology or whatever field that you're in that you like that romantic version, but you are not so enamored with the reality of having a career in that field version. And maybe becoming financially independent allows you to experience the romantic versions of the career, you know, to of, of rather of the field to a great extent without having to commit to having to earn in the career and doing maybe the work that's not quite as exciting to you. And so that's a, I don't know, it's a very like interesting idea. I actually did meet someone one time at a at a financial bloggers conference who had reached financial independence in his early 30s through whatever, he's like a finance guy or something. And he was telling me, oh, yeah, I'm considering going back and getting my PhD in some completely unrelated area because I can do whatever I want now, essentially. It doesn't matter if I get a stipend or not. I can support myself. He can pursue anything he likes. And so I've never really like discussed this idea with anyone in terms of uh, PhDs before, but I think it's, it's <laughs> I don't know, it's it's not the most outlandish thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, I mentioned this in the last chapter of my book is like, like you said, maybe you don't want it as a career too. And maybe that'll actually be more satisfying to you. So I had this talk with this very prominent biologist and he, he was talking about his friends, how like they were traveling all over the world and showing me, showing him all these cool pictures and all these cool places that they've been to. And one of the countries that he said was a country that he does a lot of work in. And I was like, you work there. You're like always traveling there. And he's like, yeah, but I'm in like conference rooms. I'm in meetings. I'm not going to see like this beautiful waterfall or go to the beaches. So again, it might be that romantic version of like, once you get to us, once you get higher up with your education, you're going to be doing like more administrative work and you're going to be writing scientific papers and writing grants and stuff like that. And, and to be honest, that's sitting behind a desk writing. So I just want people to like really understand what it's like and, and what they're getting into. And, and yeah, like if you, if you're really driven because you want to travel or have cool experiences with animals, there are citizen science vacations, earth, earth watch does this that you can pay for that give you those opportunities. Like you can pay to work with a sea turtle biologist and help him tag turtles or help them tag turtles. And, and so you can still have these experiences, but you're not the one leading them, which actually might be nice because then you don't have to worry about like all the logistics of setting everything up and, and, and yeah, and managing people and things like that. Yeah. I, I love that idea. And it's, it's just kind of thinking outside the box, right? Like how can I get to have these, this lifestyle that I want does it have to be my career or can it be something I do on the side as you're building a career in another area or I, I've retired from my career and so now I can do it afterwards? Um, I think that's a really like exciting idea that you can you can be in wildlife biology in more ways than just a full-time professional scientist. You're so right too about your your life choices changing when you get older. I, I talk to a lot of young people who are like, I don't need to live in a big house and or maybe not necessarily need to live in a big house, but you do want more things as you grow up, like, like you want more stability and things like that. You don't want to be moving around all the time. And like, even myself, I didn't want to have children, but I, but yeah, like I want to be stable and I want to stay put and not going from here to there all the time. Yeah. What I, what I often repeat on my podcast is money gives you options. And so really what you're doing when you, for instance, take out a bunch of student loan debt and then go in, you know, go into even more debt for these like pay-to-play experiences and eventually go into graduate school and you're there for a long time and then post, you know, all the things that you might have to do to get this final career that you are going for. If all that while you're just accumulating debt and you're not putting money into retirement, you're basically hamstringing yourself into this career has to work out or I am sunk. You know, and instead, if you try to pursue it, but in a more balanced manner in terms of your finances and other areas of life, you can get to that point, maybe when you're done with your PhD and say, okay, I have options. I can still pursue this career that I'm going for. I can get another type of job because you have built up some financial stability along the way. So it gives you options. You don't feel like you're stuck in just the one type of job that you've been going for that whole time, which might not even be available to you. Absolutely. 
Okay. Well, as we're wrapping up the interview, Stephanie, one thing that I ask all of my guests is what is your best financial advice for another early career PhD? I think probably the best is, and this is, this is where I always tell people to start out in this career is to look at the jobs out there now that they ultimately want. And I have a tool on my website for this. It's called the job tracker. And you basically just like write down or you copy and paste like what jobs you like, how much they pay, what your education is. And then in my course, I also, I also have a budget planner too. And like, see if you can afford that career and see if it, if it works out to be the type of lifestyle that you want. So really like copy the salary and the location and look up houses in that area and how much they cost and and, and, and see if this fits into your lifestyle. But, but again, like really get an idea of like where you want to end up. So there's, there's no surprises and you can, you can pivot more easily along the way if you decide, okay, I, I love this, but I, I really want to make more money, which is, which is okay. Because like I said, some of these jobs, they pay, they pay very little and it can be, it can be difficult to, to live with those jobs. I, I knew somebody who, who had what other students that was like an absolute dream job, but she was just so sick of not making money. Absolutely. I love that advice. It goes along with the general theme of like being realistic. I'll give some realistic, like realism advice as well, actually. Of course, I always flip around and change what my best advice is for different situations. But I think for this interview, my best advice would be to track your net worth. And it's sometimes a really scary thing to look at. So your net worth is like the sum of all your assets. So that could be if you own property, maybe it's the value of your house, if you have money in the bank, stocks and bonds, anything like that, that all goes on the asset sides. The sum of your assets minus the sum of your liabilities and your liabilities is all your debts, student loan, mortgage, car loan, medical debt, credit cards, everything. So that number, your assets minus your liabilities is your net worth, your financial net worth. And it's sometimes a really, really scary number to look at. And a lot of people want to avoid looking at that number because they think it's it's going to be an unpleasant experience. They know that their liabilities exceed their assets and so forth, which is so, so common when you're, you know, getting out of college, early in your career in graduate school, very, very common. But I would say, like, you know, do whatever you need to do to face up to that number. And I suggest tracking it on a monthly basis. So I record my net worth, for example, on the first of every month. So it's not something I have to look at every day, but I always have an idea of where I am. And there's this, I don't know who to attribute this to, but there's this famous like sort of quote or maxim that's like, what gets measured gets improved, like gets worked on basically. And so just by the mere fact of like tracking your net worth and seeing which direction it's going in might influence your, I hope will influence your behavior to either, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to do that certain pay to play experience this year. Maybe I'm going to save up a bit of money and I'll be able to do it next year without putting it on a credit card. I can you know, save and, and pay for it in cash at that point. Maybe make some other decisions that are different in your you know daily life. But yeah, I think that's a really, really powerful and not very time consuming at all habit to start. I'll start doing that. <laughs> Great idea. Okay. So where can listeners find you, Stephanie? They can go to fancyscientist.com or just Google fancy scientist. I'll come up and they can contact me anyway. I check all my messages. I'm happy to answer their questions and I love hearing from people. And what is the title of your book? Getting a job in wildlife biology, what it's like and what you need to know. Great. Very blunt. (laughs) And for your listeners, again, my website is pfforphds.com. That's personal finance for PhDs. I'm also on Twitter, same handle, PF for PhDs. Yeah. And I would love to interact with anyone over those channels. And my podcast has the same name as my business, personal finance for PhDs. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I had a good time talking to you and I learned a lot. Thank you. I It's exciting to me to learn about a new field and kind of wrap my mind around like particular financial challenges within that field. Thank you, Emily, so much for this conversation. It was so much fun to have a chat with you about this very, very important topic. You can find Dr. Emily Roberts on Twitter. She is at PF4PhDs, and you can also find her at her website, pf 4 So that's with an S. 
pfforphds.com. If you need help with your taxes or any sort of financial plan in your graduate school, she is a great person to turn to. She also has a lot of free resources on her website, so make sure you go over there to check her out. Thanks again, Emily. I had a great time chatting with you. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.